0: Well, good morning. Welcome to Springbrook. We're so glad you are here with us this morning. Hope everybody had a great Thanksgiving. Uh, my family did. We had all of our kids come in from our, around the town, around the different states, and uh, we had turkey and got to hang out, and they're all going back home today. So now the house is, oh, know, it's going to get back to normal, but it's going to be quiet. So how many didn't have turkey? Did everybody have turkey? Does anybody not have turkey? <laughs> I like turkey leftovers. We still have a couple leftovers. And we used to do Thanksgiving uh, for the sailors here in that was one of the things we missed when we were doing it. We never had leftovers. Now i got this big old pile of turkey in my uh, refrigerator. Just good, good uh, recipes for out there. So if you're looking for something, email me. I'll shoot you some recipes. Well, we're glad you're with us this morning. Today we're finishing up our series called The Case for Faith. And today we're going to be looking at the fact that we can uh, trust the Bible. And I am really excited about the opportunity to teach on that because um, I absolutely love this book. Uh, the Bible transformed my life. There was a point when uh, I was far from God. The Bible was kind of an enigma. It was one of those things that I think we had in the house somewhere. But uh, I tell you, I started reading it and uh, the Bible just uh, changed my life. And I know it will change yours too. And so as we come to God's Word this morning, I want to invite you to uh, just pray with me as we uh, lift our time up uh, to the Lord this morning. Uh, Father, I just want to thank you for your written Word. And I just pray that as we uh, move through uh, the various passages this morning that you would use them in various ways to draw us closer to yourself. God, help us to move from belief uh, to faith to trust. And uh, God, uh, I thank you for your word. I know that we can trust it. I pray that you would continue to have it written on our hearts and our minds, uh, God, so that we can bring you glory with our lives. And we left our time up to you. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I came to faith uh, 20 years ago, uh, just this past month, actually. And um, I had a passage in Acts chapter 10 and 11 that were pretty critical for me with regard to my faith commitment. There was a story about a guy named Cornelius who was a God-fearer, prayed regularly, went to church, and, um, you know, feared God. He just, he was a good guy, but he wasn't saved, according to Acts chapter 10 and 11, until he heard a message from Peter about about Jesus Christ. And it says uh, he uh, heard that message, and uh, he made a faith commitment, and he and his whole house made a faith commitment, and they were all saved. And so I thought, you know, there's a guy that was, you know, a God-fearer was, for the most part, a good guy, but wasn't saved until he heard about a his need for a relationship with Christ. And so that was kind of a critical passage for me on uh, my faith journey. I want to share a passage with you this morning from 1 John chapter 1. And it's another one of those passages that has always been uh, kind of a milestone passage for me in my faith walk as I think about what does it mean to move from being a, a person of uh, faith to a, to a person of trust. And in 1 John chapter 1, it's written by John, and he opens up with these words. He says, That which was from the beginning, speaking of Jesus, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim to you concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it, and we testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and we have heard, so that you may have fellowship with us and our fellowship was with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. And I can remember the first time I read that, I was kind of captivated by the fact of all. how many of his senses were at work there. You know, he saw it, he touched it, um, he, uh, his hands touched it, and it, it, all of his senses were at work. He didn't taste. <laughs> but I was amazed at how many, how many of his senses were at work with regard to what he's telling us about Jesus. And the, the point that he... He's trying to make here is, hey, look, I saw this, and I'm writing this down to you, so that your joy may be made complete with me. And it was one of the things that was attractive to me about that was, is like, wow, this is this is firsthand eyewitness testimony. You see, for me, the book uh, the Bible has just always been kind of a an enigma. I never did understand it. I thought it was written in Latin. We had the Latin Mass, and I found out it was written in Hebrew and Greek and all of a sudden, I found out it was okay for me to read it. <laughs> and then I found out it was okay for me to get a translation that I could read and understand, because the one I had was a little hard. And I started reading through the Bible, and it occurred to me that what we had is not just a collection of some myths or some stories, but we had history in here. We had eyewitness testimony in here. We had, we had men and women that God used whose stories were captured in here so that we could come to know and understand and believe and have trust in a God that really does have wants to have a relationship with us. You know, this is the only religious book that was not written by someone, quote unquote. As we look through it, we're gonna see it in just a little bit. It was written by a vast variety of people over a long period of time. You know, the Quran was written by only one guy, Muhammad, in six fifty. And so we've had this book, it's been around for over thirty five hundred years, it's the oldest written book on religious belief system. It's trustworthy. It's true. And so this morning, we're going to look at the fact that we can trust the Bible. It is life transforming. And we're going to look at six reasons why we can trust the Bible this morning. Now, I got to tell you, I had 20 to begin with. (laughs) This is a great book. And there's a lot of great reasons to believe in this book. And I got it down to 12. I thought, well, that's too many. People are not going to to stay for that long. And so I got it down to 10 and then finally ended up at 6. And so there's six reasons this morning. I'm sure you could probably summarize this down to four, probably one or two. I, actually, there's just one for me. But, you know, I thought these six good reasons really kind of summarize what I thought were really rational reasons for us to believe in the Bible. I hope that uh, you find them uh, rational as well. And so regardless of where you are in your journey this morning, I pray that you're drawn closer into an appreciation for God's word, maybe drawn into a closer relationship with him or encouraged uh, in your faith. Six reasons we can trust the Bible. And here's the first one. We're going to call it personal experience. You know, one of the reasons that we can trust the Bible is that it gives the experiences that it claims. You know, for example, the Bible says that God will forgive our sins. That's a claim that it, claim that it makes. And that's a, an experience that I've come to have. The Bible says that we will forgive our sins if we come to Christ. I came to Christ and God forgave my sins he changed my heart. He changed my mind. He changed the way I think. He he removed guilt from me. He was, enabled me to move beyond the baggage of my past. When the Bible says that God will forgive your sins, he means it. Because I thought I always had to be a better person. I mean, going to church was something that I thought, well, you know, the good people. <laughs> you know, I didn't realize that God met me right where I was at and that God would forgive me where I was at. And that was good news to me. That's news that I experienced in Romans Five, chapter eight, it says this: God shows His love for us in this—that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is great news. That we don't have to clean ourselves up. That somehow we don't have to have our act together. That we don't have to have, you know, a right perspective. That God will come down and meet us right where we're at, and forgive our sins. That's the reason Christ died for our sins. You know, God will meet us right where we are at. In First John one nine, it says that we confess our sins. He's faithful, and he's just, and he will forgive us our sins and cleanse us for all unrighteousness. You know, because of Jesus' death on the cross, I can be forgiven. That is great news. That's something that I have personally experienced. I'm able to live my life differently than I once did. First Corinthians says that when we come to Christ, the old is gone, the new has come. We're a new creation in Christ, and I have Experienced that personally. I've experienced that forgiveness that is ours in Christ. The Bible promises forgiveness and I've experienced that. The Bible also says and promises us salvation and I've experienced that as well. I have the assurance of spending eternity in heaven with God. I no longer have to worry about being separated from God from all eternity. I have the assurance, the promise of spending eternity with God in heaven. I've experienced that promise. I have the assurance. You know, Romans 10:8 says this, verses 10-8-9. He says, "The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved." And so, Christianity is not about a bunch of people that are walking around waiting for heaven. It's about people that have experienced forgiveness and are experiencing salvation right now. When we confess our mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in our heart that we raised Him from the dead, we are saved now. I'm working out my salvation and it will be realized at the point that I die and I stand before God, but I am experiencing salvation right now because of who I am in Christ. Jesus said in John 10.10 that I came so that they could have life and have it to the full. That we would not be Just you know, led astray and by evil, but we can have life and have it to the full right now. We can experience salvation right now. It's a promise that the that the Bible makes that I have experienced. You know, I can remember when I came to faith in Christ. It was uh, almost 20 years ago. Uh, I was at a church in uh, Gray's Lake, Faith Church, and I walked in confused, had questions, and I had an opportunity to. uh, I met with the pastor at the time, Zach Turner, and uh, he came over to my house. Uh, one Sunday and was just kind of was walking through how to have a relationship with Christ and I'll never forget he was he was talking about the fact that we have we have all sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God and I was like ooh, I'm a sinner I didn't like that I'm not as bad as this guy and so I started talking with him about the fact that really I'm not a sinner I'm not that bad I'm not as bad as him And, and so he would go on to say well you know well, yeah, you need to confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. And I was like, well, I believe that. I've already done that. And he said, well, then you need to get baptized. And I was like, well, I've already been baptized. I was baptized as an infant. And he kept telling me passages. And I kept telling him, well, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm okay. <laughs> and then he left. And uh, he left the paper with me, and I was kind of thinking through that. And God just kind of pricked my heart and just kind of convicted me of the fact that while I believed in the church, while I believed in Jesus, I believed in the Bible. I had one in my house somewhere that I had never really committed my life to Christ. I really hadn't placed my faith in Christ. And I confessed with my mouth, Jesus is Lord. And I made a faith commitment. I got baptized at Faith Baptist Church in uh, 19, it was 1995, going into 1996. I've got that written down somewhere. You know, but God transformed my life. If we confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord, we will be saved. We are experiencing salvation right now. God promises forgiveness. He, pro- he promises us um, salvation. And I've experienced both of those things. I've experienced forgiveness, salvation. And the Bible also says that um, we can experience the Holy Spirit. We can have the power of the Holy Spirit working in our life. That's a promise that God makes that I have personally experienced. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit will come into your life when you give your life to Christ. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, It says that the Holy Spirit will be on you and you'll receive power to be his witness. And so the Holy Spirit comes on us at the point that we make our faith commitment. The Holy Spirit is external in the life of a believer, drawing people into a relationship with himself. And when we cross that line of faith, the Holy Spirit enters into us. We become a temple unto God. The Holy Spirit is living in us and guiding us and directing us and enabling us to do those things that we need to do. It's the same power that spoke creation into existence is available inside of us. And I have experienced that. That's a promise that the Bible makes that I have experienced. In uh, Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 13, Paul's writing, it says, In him also, speaking of Jesus, when you heard that word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and you believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. In other words, we have the Holy Spirit living in us right now. We have the promise of that until our inheritance comes, until that point that we go to stand before God. We have the Holy Spirit in us right now. And I have been sealed. It's like an envelope. I don't know if you've ever licked an envelope. You put something in it, you lick it, and you seal it. That's what it means to be sealed. I have the Holy Spirit in me and I've been sealed. Nothing can get in there. Nothing can take it away. And I have that whole power that spoke creation into existence in me that enables me to live out this transformed life that God's called me to. I have personally experienced that. I have the Holy Spirit in me. I've experienced that. I've experienced, I've experienced forgiveness. I've experienced salvation. And I've experienced the power of the Holy Spirit working in my life. Those experiences are testimony to the fact that the Bible is true. In fact, just do a quick experience, a uh, quick experience, experiment. If you have experienced those things in your life forgiveness, if you've experienced salvation and the Holy Spirit in your life, just raise your hand just briefly, just really quick. Yeah, I'm getting put them down. That's testimony. You know, personal experience has informed that this is true. In fact, millions of people all across the globe have put the Bible to test in this way, and they've all experienced the same thing as well. What draws us here today as a part of the church, as a part of the body of Christ, is the same thing that has drawn every church together in our community, in our state, in the nation, across the globe. We're all drawn together because of our experience of being able to have experienced forgiveness, salvation, and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That is testimony to the fact that we can trust the Bible. We can trust the Bible because of our personal experiences. And then number two, we can trust it because statistically, the number of prophecies fulfilled just forces us (laughs) to trust it's true. You know, there are approximately 450 Old Testament references to a future person That were all fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Saying where he would be born, where he would live, specific things about his life, even what he would say on his death on the cross My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All of those prophecies in the Old Testament have come true in the person of Jesus Christ. There was a gentleman named uh, Peter Stoner, and he was the chairman of Professor of Science, uh, and he was a chairman and a professor of science at Westmont College. He was the chairman and professor of Department of Mathematics and Astronomy at Pasadena City College. In other words, the guy was really smart. He was a mathematician, and uh, he worked particularly in the area of probabilities. And he, uh, worked, uh, he wrote a book called The Science Speaks, uh, where he looks at just eight Old Testament prophecies and the probability of them coming through by accident. And this is what he came up with. The odds of eight prophecies in the Old Testament, all just coming through by accident in the person of Jesus Christ, the probability of that would be 10 to the 17th power. That's a one with 17 zeros. I had to look that one up. A million, a billion, a trillion. What comes after a trillion? Does everybody know? <laughs> 17 zeros is a lot of zeros. It's called the quintillion. It's just under a quintillion and, uh, you know, imagine what a quintillion looks like. You can't really physically in your mind imagine what that number looks like. But if you were to take a pile, of, if you were to take a, just a big pile of marbles, they would cover the state of Texas, and it would be two feet thick. That's what a quintillion marbles would look like. Now, imagine you took one of those marbles. Let's say they're all white. and You took one, and you made it black and you threw it out in the middle of the state of Texas, and they were all mixed up. Now imagine somebody blindfolded. You're blindfolded, and somebody says to you, go find that black marble. The odds of you finding that are one in a quintillion. (laughs) That's what one to 10 to the 17th power looks like. That's what the odds are of just eight prophecies all coming true in the Old Testament from when they were prophesied to when they came true in fulfillment in Jesus Christ. That's just for one. The prophet Isaiah says this in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Hey, Christmas is coming. Do you know that? The Lord himself will give you a sign. And behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. So we've got the birth of Christ coming. And uh, it's a part of a prophecy that Isaiah gave in chapter 7, verse 14. It has its fulfillment in the New Testament in Jesus Christ. In the book of Luke, in chapter 1, it says this. An angel's talking to Mary and saying, hey, look, you're going you're gonna to have a baby. And she says to the angel, well, how can this be that I'm going to give birth to a son, since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, and the Holy Spirit will come upon you, he says, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be born will be, that will be born to you will be called holy. He will be the Son of God. And so this prophecy of Isaiah in chapter 7 comes to fulfillment in Luke chapter 1. That's one. That's one prophecy that has been foretold that's come true in Jesus Christ. There's over 450 more of them. (laughs) The probability of eight of them is just one in the quintillion. I can't even say the word. You know what? There is no possible way that somebody could have made all this up. Can you imagine what it would be like for somebody to make up the idea of, hey, let's make up all these prophecies and let's wait to see if they come true thousands of years later. I mean, you just, you couldn't make that up. And so the statistical probability of all those prophecies being fulfilled forces us to come to the grips of the fact that, hey, there's something in this book that we need to pay attention to. This book is trustworthy. It's true. Looking at all the prophecies and the number that have been fulfilled give us a solid reason to believe in the trustworthiness of the Bible. So we have our experiences, we have prophecies, and then number three, we have scientific support that gives us reason to believe and trust in the Scripture. How many of you have heard of uh, Albert Einstein? Everybody know Albert Einstein, right? He's the guy that came up with the E equals MC squared. Everybody know that formula? You know, I was watching my kids uh, just work on their homework, and I got biology and math in there, and it's amazing how much you, don't, you realize you don't know until one of your kids asks you, hey, what about this? My kids don't even ask me anymore. They're, they're out there. But uh, Albert Einstein was a pretty smart guy too. He was a scientist, theoretical physicist. And uh, when it came to creation, he kind of came to the conclusion after looking around that there had to be a creator. He says the scientist is possessed by the sense of universal causation. His religious feelings take the form of a rapturous amazement at the harmony of natural law which reveals an intelligence of such superiority that compared with it, all the systematic thinking and acting of human beings is what? Is an utterly insignificant reflection. And so Albert Einstein, as he thinks about and just looks about and thinks about all of the physics, came to the conclusion, now look, there's got to be some kind of a superior authority that's over all of this. As a scientist, I know a lot of times people feel like science and Christianity are at odds with one another, but they're not. Science actually points to and supports the idea that there is a superior, all-knowing being. In fact, Fred Hoyle, an an influential astronomer who has kind of looked at the stars, he's an expert on the stars and the alignment, uh, says this. He said, there's a common sense interpretation of the facts suggesting that what? A super intellect has monkeyed with the physics. I love that word monkeyed with. That gives me hope for my vocabulary. All right, this guy's really smart, and he's using the word monkey with," so I like him already. There's a super intellect that's monkeyed with physics as well as with the chemistry and biology, and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. The numbers one calculates from the facts seem to me so overwhelming, as to put this conclusion almost to rest beyond reason. And so here we go. We see another scientist really pointing to this idea of a creator. Science is not at odds with Christianity. In fact, science points to the idea up there is a creator. One of my favorites is uh, this. There's a guy named Herbert Spencer, and he was a philosopher. He was really famous in his day about taking um, scientific discoveries and applying them to uh, 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 philosophical matters. He says this, everything that is knowable is either time, force, action, space, or matter. Everything. Everything scientifically fits in and exists into one of those categories. Everything that we see, know, experience, fits into one of these five categories. Look at Genesis 1.1, the very first book of the Bible. In the beginning is time. God, force, created, action, the heaven, space, the earth, matter. You know, When you take a look at science, science just is constantly pointing to the existence of creation. I was looking through uh, different... Um, Scientific website, there's, a lot, there's just a ton of information uh, on the Internet right now about just being able to find how science and Christianity and the Bible are working hand in hand. There was one guy, I forgot the quote, said that all of our futility of climbing the mountain of knowledge, we've gotten to the top and found out we've just met the religious people of the Old Testament. <laughs> you know, Everything points to creation. Science points to a creator. And that doesn't come as any surprise at all, really. If you look at Romans 1.20, it says this. God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have all been clearly perceived. Ever since the creation of the world and these things that have been made, so they are without excuse, everything cries out about the existence of God. And so when you think about science, it points to a creator. It points to a Bible that claims to be a God that loves and cares for you and wants a plan for you, who claims to have created it all. Science points to the accuracy and authenticity of the Bible. It also points to that not just from a creation perspective but from an archaeological perspective. Archaeology is a study. It's a scientific study. And one of the things that I was looking at uh, last week, and this is another website. There's actually a website you can sign up for now. It's uh, uh, the Bible and and Archaeology. I think it's a pretty pretty sophisticated title. Uh, But you can sign up for that. There's a little place that you can sign up. You give them your email address. And they will email you every time that a discovery happens that coincides with something in the Bible. Pretty fascinating, actually. And I got really overwhelmed with all the archaeological evidence and how much of it actually points to the authenticity of Scripture. But one of them really kind of stood out for me. In 1846, um, in the the ruins of the Palace of Nimrud, uh, they uncovered a a six-and-a-half-foot black obelisk. And this is a picture of it, and you really can't. You really see what some of the writings on there. But um, the interpretation of this was that there was a biblical figure that was known to be the king of Israel at the time. And he was kneeling before uh, the king of Assyria, whose name was uh, Shalmaneser. And uh, Shalmaneser had come in from Assyria and he had taken captive uh, the Israelites. And so this whole story is played out right there. And it's one of the most complete Assyrian obelisks just discovered. And it's historically significant because one of the things that you find is you find this exact same story told in Scripture. Look at the Second Kings chapter 18. In the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hoshea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, Shalamaneser, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria, besieged it, and at the end of three years he took it. And the story would go on to take that at the end of this conquest, they were all taken captive and they all ended up being underneath this king of Assyria named Shalamaster. And so the story that you find on this ablash that was found is the exact same story that you find in Folden Second Kings. And it was really fascinating. And so this was one, there's like a hundred. I had to pick one that was really good. I thought that was really fascinating because it was a a one to one correlation. You know, and then we've got the we've got the uh, um, Dead Sea Scrolls. You know, between nineteen forty seven and nineteen fifty six, some nine hundred manuscripts were found in a cave around Qumran. 900 manuscripts. You know, they were, uh, as you look down through them, 200 of those manuscripts were actually tied to or scrolls that were portions of the Bible itself that were dated from 250 B.C. to uh, A.D. 68. Amazingly, every single one of the Old Testament books was discovered there except for the book of Esther. And so we've had this book for, at thirty five hundred years we've been walking around with it, and all of a sudden we find some scrolls and they and they match up exactly. Does that come as a surprise to anybody? They matched up exactly science from an archaeological perspective is constantly uncovering and revealing things that are validating what we have in scripture. You know there was a point when people were looking down through some of the names of these cities, and they were like, these aren't real cities; these are all mythical cities you know just just not too many years ago, Jericho was validated. Haran, Hazor, Dan, Shechem, Samaria, Gazar, Beth Shemesh, Beth, Shien, Beth Sheba. All these cities that we've seen named through Scripture are all being uncovered in reality through archaeology. Science is routinely and consistently pointing to the accuracy and the trustworthiness of our Bible. We have experience. We have... Uh, science, and we've got, you know, the hope of God's word. All these, all these things are pointing to the accuracy of Scripture. And the fourth reason, though, we'll look at that we can trust the Bible is that it withstands the test of text criticism. You know, apart from the personal experiences, the prophecies fulfilled, the scientific support, text criticism is one of those issues that every piece of literature has to stand up to with scrutiny. Text criticism is a scientific method used to determine the authenticity of original manuscripts, and what they said. And what they've discovered about the Bible is that its narrative is uniquely and accurately woven together in a way that there are no inconsistencies. There's no inconsistencies or errors within its pages. You know, it's a, there's a unity in 66 books that all teach of a triune God, that all point to the deity of Jesus Christ, they all point to the personality of the Holy Spirit, and they all talk to and address the issue of the fall the depravity of man, salvation that's ours through grace. The Bible is uniquely woven together in a way that it withstands the most scrutinous text criticism. Just some of the things that we look at when we look through the scripture, some of the things that you can see. The Bible was written in different areas. It was written across three different continents of Europe, Asia, and Africa. It was written by approximately 40 different men with extreme diverse backgrounds. And it was written... Over a period of fifteen hundred years, as you look down through some of the things that they have written, as you look down through this some more, look at this next slide. the bible doesn 't contradict itself at all as you read through it. it contains no errors. All of the writers understood that they were writing what God had for them. You know most writings, as you, you know, as I mentioned you know Muhammad. most writers are writing from the perspective of this is what I believe or this is what I think." Every one of these men were writing from the perspective that it was something that God had given them to give to us. All the authors present different perspectives, but every single one of them proclaims the same one true God, the same way of salvation in Jesus Christ. It becomes quickly apparent that no human could have devised this kind of complexity in any type of a writing. No one could have orchestrated the harmony of teachings of scripture. It just isn't Possible. From a text critical perspective, the divine authorship of the Bible is the only answer that can explain how this has been put together. So, text criticism is one of those issues as well. In Exodus chapter 17 and verse 14, it says that the Lord said to Moses, I want you to write this as a memorial in a book. So, God instructs Moses to write this. Jeremiah says, The Lord, the God of Israel, says, Write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you. In that passage that we looked at at the beginning in 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, it said this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen, which we have looked at, which we have touched with our hands, we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So you can know these things as well. The Bible is written from the perspective of what God has for some. It was not written by a man. God instructed men to write these things down, and every single one of them from their unique, different perspectives Over a period of 1,500 years with a variety of backgrounds from different continents, all point to the same divine authorship, the same one creator, the same hope, plan of salvation, the same person of the deity of Jesus Christ. The Bible has been divinely woven together, and it has withstood the test of time over thousands of years. From a text criticism perspective, you can trust it. And number five, you can trust the Bible because of the lives of the disciples. You know, I have to tell you, of of all of these, this is the one that I think probably was the one that um, got my attention the most. (laughs) You know, when you read through the lives of the disciples, it becomes so crystal clear that every single one of them believed wholeheartedly with their entire being that Jesus is who he claimed to be. Every single one of the disciples clung to and understood and believed who Jesus was. In Matthew chapter 4, being in verse 18, we see that Jesus is um, walking by the Sea of Galilee. The beginning of chapter 4, beginning in verse 18, it says this, While they were walking in the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. And they were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately... They left their nets and they followed him. They left everything behind. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James and the son of Zebedee and John, his brother. They were in a boat with Zebedee, their father, mending nets. And he called them and immediately they left their boat, they left their father and they followed him. They left their livelihood, they left their jobs, they left everything about the, they left their family, they left everything behind and followed him immediately. They gave everything up to follow Jesus Christ. And they were with him for three years. For three years they were with him. They studied with him. They slept with him. They lived with him. They listened to him. They learned from him. And then he died. He was buried and he rose from the grave. He ascended into heaven. He left them all by themselves. And then what did they do next? Time for us to find something else to do? No, that's not what they did. They continued to tell others about Jesus. They continued to be obedient to what God had called them to do. And they continued to live out a life that pointed people to Christ. They continued to live out everything that they've learned. And and it didn't end very well for them. You know, we have two of the disciples' deaths are actually recorded in Scripture. The rest of them are collections from early church fathers and early church writings that give an indication for how they died. But let's look at it ended for each one of these disciples. John the Baptist, we know, was beheaded. Uh, We know that James was put to death by a sword. Peter was believed to have been crucified upside down in Rome. Matthew was killed by a sword wound. Bartholomew, Bartholomew was flayed to death by a whip. Andrew was crucified on an X-shaped cross. Mark was dragged to pieces by the people of Alexandria in front of their pagan idol. Thomas was stabbed to death with a spear in India. Continuing on, Matthias, the replacement for Judas, was stoned and then beheaded. Paul was tortured and beheaded. John was imprisoned on the island of Patmos, before being freed, he was the only one to die peacefully. And as we move into the next generation of disciples, we have Polycarp, who was a second century disciple of John. He was stabbed to death while being burned at the stake. Those were the first disciples. And then continuing on, if you look at the next set of Christians, and through this time, all those early Christians were in their very deaths made subjects of sport. They were covered with hides of wild beasts. They were gnawed to death by dogs. They were nailed to the cross. They were set fire to. Emperor Nero... When night came, in order to light his garden, tied Christians to the stakes and burned them to serve for evening lights. You know, if anything, the lives of the disciples are proof that what's in here is true. They left everything behind. Men and women gave their lives because what they found in here was true. They all believed that Jesus was who he claimed to be. And they all believed that the Bible is true. You know, Peter, in the book of Acts, would stand up and give his first sermon in chapter 2, beginning in verse 22. He stands up and he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs, that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, you saw them, you heard about this, you know about this. This Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified him and killed him by the hands of lawless men. Continuing on, it says this. He said, David foresaw, and he spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up from the dead, and of that we are all witnesses. Everything that they saw and heard, they believed and they wrote down. And we have the benefit of knowing their story and what they saw and what they believed as we read down through this. Not long after writing this, Peter would be martyred. You know, Peter would go and and be crucified. And he would give his life for what he believed to be true. You know, just looking at the lives of the disciples was enough to convince me that I can trust the Bible. That what's in here is worthy of my attention. And what's in here is true. They believed it and I believe it. And then the last reason that we can trust the Bible is just simply looking at the life of Christ. In the book of Luke, um, there's some men that hear Jesus is in town and he's teaching in someone's house and they have a paralytic friend and they hear that Jesus has been healing some people and so they take his friend over to the house. Probably many of you have already heard that story. Um, if you haven't, I'd encourage you to read through it. It would be a good read. If you haven't ever read the story of the paralytic being healed, read through Luke chapter 5. So they think, uh, hey, let's, let's give it a shot. Let's take our friend over to the house. And they get there and they can't get in. They go to the top of the house. They dig this hole in the top of the house. Jesus is in the house. There's crumbs falling all over his head. And boom, this guy falls right in front of him. He's laying on a mat. And uh, he looks down. And beginning in uh, verse 20 of chapter 5, it says this. When he saw the faith of the men, he looked down at the man and said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. That's not really what I came here for. Well, that's what you get. So in the midst of this, and then he goes on to continue to teach. And while this is happening, the scribes and the Pharisees are all beginning to question him, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus had just forgiven him his sins. And so Jesus, by implication, is implying to be God. Because who can forgive sins but God alone? See, Jesus believed that he had the power to forgive sins. Jesus believed that he was God you know, when I talk to people, you know, Jesus wasn't God. He was just a good guy. He was a prophet. Jesus was not just a good guy. He was not just a prophet. Jesus was God. He believed himself to be God. And he died. He was crucified because of his belief that he was God. That was the reason he was crucified. The Jews got tired of this. And they we had give her this guy. He was crucified because of his claims to be deity. Jesus was either a lunatic, a liar, or he was who he claimed to be. Now, if he was a lunatic, then everybody was lunatics that were following You know, if I claimed to be God, you guys would all think I'm a lunatic, right? Funny enough, I could claim that and I could go find somebody. I could go find some other lunatics and I could start a world religion up. You know, it's amazing how many times that happens. Jesus was either a lunatic or he was a liar. In just a moment, we're going to talk about his life and how it led to the cross and how the fact that if he was a liar at some point, I think he would have given that up. Or he was who he claimed to be. He was God. The scribes and the Pharisees are grumbling at him. And so Jesus says in verse 23, he says this. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? Which one would be easier? The words are easy. You know, healing somebody and have them get up and walk are probably a little bit more difficult. So that you may know the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. He continued on. Immediately, the man rose up before them. He picked up what he had been laying on, and he went home glorifying God. You know, Jesus would go to the cross for his claims to be God. If I made that claim to be a lunatic, I don't think anybody would follow me. I don't think anybody would really follow him if he was a lunatic. If I was a liar, I don't know, I think I would cough that up somewhere. I think he would have coughed that up. You know, if I had claimed to be God on my way to the, you know, just thinking through his life, being spit on, being ridiculed, I don't like ridicule. So if I, make, if I say something and somebody calls me on it, I'm usually pretty good. Oh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> I don't like the ridicule. I certainly don't like being spit on. I certainly don't like getting beat up. If I was lying about something and you spit on me and hit me, I'd probably go, oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> I mean, he takes it all the way. And if you stuck a crown of thorns on my head and drove them into my head, I'd probably at that point say, Okay, wait a second, maybe not. I think you would have got me with the first nail going into his hand, let alone the other hand and then the feet, let alone dying on the cross. I don't think there's any way that you can come to the conclusion that Jesus was a liar. I don't think he was a lunatic. I think he was who he claimed to be, that Jesus was God. And because of his claims and because of his life and because of what he's written and because of what we have in Scripture, I can believe it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was God, and was with God. I mean, Jesus is claiming to be the living Word, the truth, and everything that we have in here that he has spoken, we can trust because of who he was. In Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 54, there's a centurion that's standing there while Jesus is being crucified. When Jesus died and he breathes his last, last according to prophecy, the Temple curtains torn open, there's an earthquake, and when the centurion and those who were staying there were keeping watch over Jesus saw all this, they saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. He is who He claimed to be. The life of Christ in and of itself is a reason to trust the Bible. There is no human explanation for the life of Christ. If men wrote this book, there is no way. They could conceive somebody like Jesus Christ. They could never conceive of such wisdom found in Scripture. They could never write anything that would change a life the way it's changed mine and yours and so many others for so many years. They could not ever make the mouth say such profound things that you find in here. They could have never devised this incredible scheme of redemption that God has for mankind that's revealed in this book. There's no explanation for the birth of the church than the fact that we can trust this book. We're here because of what's in this book. You can't make that stuff up. You can trust the Bible, and you can trust what the Bible says. You know, in my experience, there's three types of people. There's people that believe in Jesus. There's actually four. There's atheists. But if you could talk to an atheist for a little while, you can really get them to the point, well, if you gave me enough proof then I would believe, boom, you're agnostic. And so there's three types of people. There's people that believe in Jesus or have heard about Jesus, but they have not placed their faith in him. They know his name. They know he exists. They believe in him, but they really haven't placed their faith in him. And then there's people that have placed their faith in Jesus, but they quite haven't trusted him. <laughs> or they haven't trusted him with other areas of their life. Or there's things that they're holding back. And so I place my faith in Christ, but he's, he's the Lord of my life. Maybe in these areas, believe this one alone. And so then there's people that are just, you know, they've, they're, they're, they've made a faith commitment, but they're not really fully trusting God. And then there's people that have trusted God. They've trusted God. They're sold out for Christ. They're effective at witnesses. They're effective at accomplishing what God has for them. And they're part of building up God's plan. They're part of God's plan. I think those three, those same three types of approaches that, that, when it comes to the Bible, fall into those same three categories. There's people that believe the Bible. May even have one in the house somewhere. There's people that believe the Bible. And then there's people that have placed their faith in it and they're looking through it and they're studying it and they're they're trying to figure out what's in there. And so they place their faith in there and they're they're figuring it out, and that's exciting. And then there's people that have trusted the Bible. They study it. It's transformed their life. It's something that when they want answers, they go to to answer their questions in it. They turn to scripture for a purpose. And then when they read it, they do what it says. You know, in James chapter one, James writes this. Be doers of the word, not just hearers only, deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently in his natural face in the mirror. Be like me looking in the mirror and going, oh, I've got some schmutz right here. And then looking in the mirror and then looking at himself and going away and then forgetting what he once looked like. You know, typically when we go to look in the mirror, we make some adjustments, right? Can you imagine looking in the mirror and going, ooh, that looks pretty bad, and then walking off and not doing anything with it? That's what James says, don't do. Instead, we're to be like the one who looks in the perfect law, the law of liberty, and preserves it being not just hearers who forget it, but doers who act on what they're reading. And it's then that we're going to be blessed. This morning, if we reduce trusting the Bible to just six points, and we don't do anything with it, then we've missed the point. Romans 12.1 says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to attest and approve what God's perfect will is. You'll be able to do the things that are in it. And so we need to seek God, not just for what he can tell us that we know to be true, but how we are to live out our lives. What we study and what we read should change us. It should result in some kind of a behavioral change. It should result in something of our life that says, hey, I don't just believe in the Bible. I don't just have faith that it's real. But I've trusted it, and it's changed my life, and it affects how I live while I anticipate Christ's return. You know, I was trying to think through some different next steps about what do we do with this information. Rather than just think about the six areas that we can trust the Bible, you know, what does trusting that look like? What do I do with this information? Statistically, I can tell you that there are people here this morning that believe in Jesus that have not placed their faith in Jesus. I just know that. I have conversations with all throughout our community. People, I love talking to people about Jesus. People in this community... Have questions and want to talk about Jesus. It's amazing. It's fascinating. I am so glad that people believe in Jesus and want to talk about him. But it's my prayer that they would cross that line of faith and not just believe that he exists, but that they would come to the point that they understand their need for a Savior, that they are sinful, that they are fallen, and Christ is the solution. That's my prayer, that they would come to make a faith commitment. And maybe they identify through Christ with baptism. You know, my wife and I made a commitment to one another. We got. Exchange rings is a symbol of our covenant commitment. Baptism is a symbol of a covenant commitment that we make when we make our faith commitment. And so, some of you might need to make a faith commitment this morning, or maybe you haven't been had an opportunity to be baptized or be baptized by immersion. It's an opportunity for you to publicly confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and be a testimony and encouragement to the body of Christ. And so, that might be your next step. You know, maybe you've made a faith commitment. You've been baptized. You know, my hand is not just a partner with. You know, my hand's not affiliated with my body my hand's a member the body of christ is referred to as a body we're members of one another so maybe membership is a is a next step for you membership is a biblical principle it's one of the ways that we step out in faith and trust god for his plan not just for our lives individually but collectively as the body of christ you know being involved in a small group or maybe identifying and using your spiritual gift to build up the body of christ the bible says every believer has a spiritual gift do you know yours and so part of putting this out and, and living this out in practice is maybe taking some of, these, some of these steps. Some of you are looking at this list and go, wow, I've done all of these. Okay, what do I do? You know, God needs people to be his witnesses in our community. You know, maybe, maybe being in a missionary is something that God might be prompting in your heart. We send teams down to Lawndale every month. You know, maybe head down to Lawndale. Think about what God might have for you, not just in our local church, but maybe in our community, maybe across the globe. Almost 15 years ago, my wife and I were talking about stepping out into ministry. I said, Hey, I believe God's calling me to that. She goes, Okay, well, let me know when you have faith. I said, Okay, I got faith. I think we're going into ministry now. And she goes, Okay, well, now how are you going to provide for us? And I said, Well, God's going to provide. She goes, No. How are you going to provide? I said, Well, we have faith. God's going to provide. How are you going to provide? <laughs> That's the trust part. And we had to learn how to trust God together. God might be calling some of you to be missionaries. I don't know. Maybe God's just calling you to be a missionary in your workplace and share your faith there or talk to your neighbor or invite somebody to Christmas. I mean, God's got something for every one of us, right? So it's my prayer this morning that God would use this message not just to help us to be secure in our faith, which we should be, and to help us further our trust in the Bible, but that he would use us to transform our lives. Would you pray with me? Father, I just thank you for this time you've given us today. And as we head into the holidays, we're getting ready to celebrate the birth of Jesus. And I just pray that we're able to keep our minds and eyes, hearts focused on him. God, help us not be distracted by the things that are happening around us. I know the things that are happening in Chicago uh, can be a distraction. The things that are happening with ISIS can be a distraction. The things that are happening in our own homes can be a distraction. But God, we want to stand firm on your word. I just pray that you would help us to be able to Find our confidence in you. The Bible says that we're going to have problems in in this world, that our peace is in Christ. And so I just pray for each of us that we would be able to find our peace in you. God, I thank you that you've given us your word, that we can trust it. And, God, we look forward to the great things that you have for us, individually and collectively as the body of Christ here at Springbrook. We lift this day up to you for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.